Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults explores some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. Not all trans people are heroes. There's a tendency when looking back at our ancestors to view them with rose-colored glasses and skip over the more uncomfortable aspects of their lives. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Trans people and queer people have been denied our histories. We've been told that we are new and do not exist backwards in time. And we're inundated with cultural images that paint us as liars, deceivers, degenerates, monsters... So we instinctively push back against those stereotypes by holding up the best and brightest among us and among our ancestors to prove everyone wrong. And that is all well and good. But here's the thing. As a writer, I love characters who fuck up. I love characters who make bad choices, sometimes out of desperation and sometimes on purpose. I love characters who are morally ambiguous or even flat out wrong. History is full of people making bizarre choices with devastating consequences, and some of those people are trans. In this episode, we're going to look at the life of one such person, a woman of many names, a self-proclaimed genius who caused a media sensation and national manhunt in the mid-1970s. Join us as we look at the life of Liz Carmichael and her genius invention, The Dale. The best car never built. From 1969 to 1984, a bi-monthly newsletter circulated to an extremely small readership was published by Murray Rothbard. Despite its small circulation, the newsletter made a huge impact on crystallizing the nascent libertarian movement's politics. In its May 1975 issue, the Libertarian Forum ran an article titled Libertarian Ripoff of the Month Department, which began, quote, A couple of years ago, a friend of mine was visiting California for a scholarly conference. There, he ran into a fellow who had in his possession a rare copy of an unpublished manuscript of someone on whom my friend was engaged in writing a doctoral dissertation. The fellow told my friend that if he gave him $30, he would soon ship him a Xerox of the manuscript. My friend was highly skeptical, but the call of dissertation, it is always heady, and so my friend forked over the $30, fully expecting that this would be the last he would ever hear of either the $30 or the manuscript. Much was his astonishment when, a few weeks later, the promised Xerox arrived in the mail. My friend was agog. Jesus, he told me. 
This was the first time I ever had business dealings with a libertarian that I wasn't ripped off. An exaggerated estimate, perhaps, but certainly an understandable one. There used to be a highly naive view widespread in the libertarian movement that because someone was a libertarian and therefore respected property rights, that one could always rely on libertarians to be honest and rational in their business dealings. Ha! I dare say that there are few ideological movements in recent times that have been beset by more frauds, shysters, and bunko artists than the libertarian movement. The article then went on to detail a strange case of fraud that was beguiling the United States media and law enforcement at the time. The case swirled around an odd woman and her soon-to-be-available invention that was set to save America. In 1973, the United States was in the middle of an oil crisis. October of that year saw the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries begin an embargo on oil, causing the global price of oil to leap up overnight, with America being the hardest hit. By 1974, oil had jumped from $3 a barrel to $12. Americans were, at the time, held in the grips of the Gas Guzzler Automotive Corporations, primarily based in Detroit, who made big cars that ate through gas like cotton candy. These cars were relics of the post-war era, when the sudden boost in the American economy made bigger mean better. And now, on the verge of a total economic collapse, as cars lined up sometimes for hours at gas stations just to fill their tanks, America needed a solution. In 1974, Liz Carmichael had that solution. Appearing seemingly out of nowhere, this widow of a former NASA structural engineer with five children claimed to have the know-how to invent a car that would eat up less fuel. And at no more than $2,000 a pop. What a steal. This Los Angeles-based innovator was going to grab Detroit by the balls. As the Libertarian Forum put it in 1975, quote, the lady, Mrs. G. Elizabeth Carmichael, was indeed a heroine straight out of a Randian novel, albeit a bit earthier. She gave interviews in which she proclaimed that she gave all the orders and made all the decisions in her company, and that her subordinate executives were simply yes-men carrying out her orders. She held forth with a parody of a Commodore Vanderbilt Rand speech, announcing that she didn't give a shit about the public, that all she cared about was Liz Carmichael, and for that reason she was going to produce a car, the Dale, that would knock the hell out of Detroit. As a Newsweek story reported afterwards, quote, a visitor to her Encino, California office recalls her as a big, stocky woman at least six feet tall, thrusting out a large, beefy hand with pink nails and saying in a low, husky voice, I am a genius. Plenty of self-esteem there. Scorning her subordinate executives, she declared that she had more balls than all of them put together. Yes, truly a tough tycoon in the heroic mold. Money poured into the company, with Liz claiming to have as much as $30 million from investors to produce her three-wheeled, gas-efficient, economical, yellow car, the Dale. And she was ready for it, telling journalists that she'd have 88,000 cars produced by 1975, each of which would get 70 miles a gallon. 
Here's a tiny clip of Liz Carmichael herself at the time discussing where the money came from. We have pledges from private individuals for private stock. Exactly who these private individuals she was getting all of this money from is questionable. The Libertarian Forum points out that one method she used was to place employment ads in newspapers, and then when job applicants arrived, she would talk them into investing in the company. The company, by the way, was named 20th Century Motor Car Company, a name that might sound familiar to you if, God forbid, you've read Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. 20th Century Motor Company is a fictional company in the novel. And what was Liz Carmichael's miracle car to be made out of? The brand new, and as of yet unheard of, Reardon Metal. Reardon Metal also happens to be an alloy invented by Harry Reardon in the novel Atlas Shrugged. Liz appeared on talk shows, in People magazine, and Newsweek to promote her invention, and the public, desperate for a solution to the oil crisis, ate it up. 20th Century Motor Car Company expanded its LA area staff rapidly, renting out an airplane hangar from which they would begin production on the car. So far, all anyone had seen of the bright yellow three-wheeler, beyond flashy ads, was a prototype. Despite this, they were selling dealerships left, right, and center. Here's what one man, Frank A. Gavrich, who became a Dale car dealer, told the TV series Unsolved Mysteries in 1989 about the Dale's appeal. We all heard of the gas guzzlers coming from Detroit, and here's somebody could put out an automobile that could uh, get 60 miles to a gallon of gas and travel all over the city without a problem uh, would have been the ideal automobile. She had the ability to incite this fire in you. She's a very dynamic, strong person, and uh, she did things that, that uh, impressed us. Things took a turn when, in January 1975, a disgruntled employee, Jack Oliver, noted by the Libertarian Forum as an ex-con, entered the offices of 20th Century Motor Car Company and shot the company's PR man, William D. Miller, himself an ex-con, to death. The two had apparently served time together at San Quentin Prison. This incident brought police into the offices, and what they found went much deeper than a murder. Liz was accused by the California Department of Corporations of illegally selling both dealerships and as-yet-unproduced cars. It was then discovered by the Department of Motor Vehicles that she had no state permit to manufacture cars. Special Investigator Bill Hall of the California DMV told Unsolved Mysteries, We went to the research and development lab and observed what appeared to be people appearing to be busy, but in wandering through the lab, uh, I saw no evidence that they were designing a vehicle or in the process of making a vehicle. I went to this airport. Upon entering, I discovered the factory were nothing. Hangers were absolutely empty, no tools, no machinery, nothing but a little dirt on the floor. They had rented this for only one month, and the rent had now expired. 
So they actually did not have a factory that they were representing they had. Fearing the state authorities in California, Liz suddenly picked up shop and moved the corporation to Dallas, Texas. She announced big, exciting changes would soon follow. The big, exciting changes turned out to be renaming the Dale to the Revette. She managed to get a prototype of the Revette onto the Price is Right as a showcase showdown prize in early 1975. An article on jalopnik.com notes that the contestant wasn't able to guess the right price, saving Liz from having to actually give away the car. But within a few weeks, Liz was brought up on felony grand theft charges by the local district attorney. Bill Hall in California got a search warrant and for the first time was able to inspect the car itself. Here's what he told Unsolved Mysteries. Upon inspection of this vehicle, it was not a viable vehicle at all. It had no engine. Two by fours were holding up the rear wheel. The accelerator was just sitting on the floor. It wasn't even attached. The windows were not safety glass. They would bend back and forth. The uh, doors were put on by regular door hinges like one might find on a house door. The vehicle just absolutely did not exist. Liz and her five children fled Dallas. When the police inspected the house, they found wigs, a gaff, and a waist cincher. What the Libertarian Forum referred to as standard transvestite fare. According to AP dispatches in April 1975, Police had identified 47-year-old Geraldine Liz Carmichael by her birth name, Jerry Dean Michael, a fugitive who jumped bail on federal counterfeit charges in 1962. The media didn't skip a beat before jumping on this salacious detail, taking pains to describe her 6'2 height and stocky build and, as in the San Francisco Chronicle, making snide comments about her boasting to have more balls than all of her male executives. A nine-month manhunt found Liz and her children in Miami after a tip-off from a neighbor who'd seen the story on the news. Liz had taken on the assumed name Susan Rains and was working as an escort with a local escorting agency. She was arrested on April 12, 1975 and extradited to California where she faced charges of conspiracy, fraud, and grand theft. Here's how Robert Youngdahl, the Los Angeles deputy district attorney who oversaw the case, described Liz and her trial to Unsolved Mysteries. Liz arrived in court every day in miniskirts. Now here is somebody who's over 200 pounds and over six feet tall, has a uh, demeanor of, I am a new Henry Ford. It was uh, rather bizarre. Liz did not give one quarter in the course of the trial. There was never once when Liz gave up her position that the people who supported her would vindicate her. During the trial, she revealed that she had begun the process of medically transitioning eight years before in the late 1960s. This would have been around the time of the inception of gender identity clinics, making her part of the first wave of transsexuals in America receiving coordinated clinical care. Despite her firm identification as a woman, many continue to question to this day whether her transition was, in fact, just a ruse to escape the fugitive status of her male legal identity. Liz was found guilty on all counts and released on bail to await sentencing. She appealed her conviction unsuccessfully over the next few years, with her appeals centering on the claim that being a transsexual made it impossible for the court to put her in either men's prison or a women's prison. 
When her date for sentencing finally arrived, Liz skipped town. She disappeared for most of the 1980s. And this is where Unsolved Mysteries stepped in. Unsolved Mysteries was a popular television show focusing on cold cases. It was interactive. Episodes revolved around unsolved cases and urged viewers to call their hotline if they had information that might solve it. On April 5th, 1989, they aired the Liz Carmichael story and soon got a call on their hotline. The viewer claimed to have spotted Liz working as a flower vendor under the name Catherine Elizabeth Johnson. She was living in, of all places, Dale, Texas, which is near Austin. Her flower business was mostly staffed by teens. She was subjected to the usual transphobic treatment upon arrest and placed in a men's cell and later a men's prison due to not having had bottom surgery though it should be noted that she had had top surgery already. She was sentenced to 32 months in a men's prison. She served two years of her sentence and then three years of parole. The only prototype of the Dale car is now on display at the Peterson Car Museum in Los Angeles. What happened to Liz Carmichael after she got out of prison is a bit of a mystery. An anonymous commenter on the blog of trans historian Zagria claims that Liz died in 2004, when she would have been 67 years old. However, this comment was left in response to Zagria's questioning of why Liz's Wikipedia article had been recently, as of 2008, updated to remove all mention of her being transgender. The article has been updated greatly over the past 10 years, merging it with the article on the 20th Century Motor Car Company and the Dale Carr article, and removing nearly all mention of Liz herself. Zagria questions if Liz is perhaps behind the scrubbing. We're left to wonder whether she really did die in 2004, or if perhaps she is up to her old tricks and has faked the death of Liz Carmichael in order to get on with life under whatever name she uses now. What we do know is that she leaves behind five children, Brian, Candy, Wendy, Sean, and Michael. A reporter for Jalopnik.com claims that after her release from prison, she seems to have returned to the roadside flower selling business, this time in Austin, Texas itself. Liz Carmichael is no hero of trans history, but she sure did leave us a gonzo story. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is now recorded in London, England. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, 
please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. Patrons who donate $5 or more per month get access to special bonus mini episodes each month, as well as the archive of all previous bonus episodes. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter or follow OFTV's new Twitter at OFTV Podcast. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. She's just a